There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. Today's episode is all about deer hunting weapon choice and how mixing things up can make you a better hunter overall. I grew up as a strict bow hunter. From the age of 12 until I think I was 24, I never picked up a gun to hunt any big game. Even then, the gun I picked up was a little 243 because my dad and I had planned a trip out west to hunt Wyoming antelope. Now the little goat I shot on day two, that was my first big game animal with a rifle. And while it didn't exactly line me out on a gun hunter's path, it did actually open my eyes. It also made it easier for me to try out a muzzleloader, which I just kind of fell in love with. And throughout this, and through a brief foray into traditional bow hunting and now crossbows for my kids, I've realized something. Hunting with a different weapon can make you a better hunter overall. And now I'm going to tell you how. Many of you fine listeners might not know this about me, but I am obsessed with dogs, working dogs mostly. And the other side of my career, the one that doesn't involve whitetails at all, involves dogs. Training them, writing about them, photographing them, filming them, you name it. I freaking love dogs that have a job. I also really look up to some dog trainers, and I've had the good fortune of becoming close friends with a fellow named Tom Dockin. And Doc, I don't know, if he's not the goat of retriever training, he's definitely on the podium holding up a top three medal. Now, I know and have interviewed a pile of other legends in the sport, too. 
and plenty of the up-and-comers who will probably unseat the old names after a few decades. Do you know what you find when you embed yourself into that world of breeding and training hunting dogs? You find people who challenge themselves to level up, and you find people who choose an easier path to get really good at very specific aspects of dog training or specializing in a certain breed. Let me give you an example of the former. One trainer I know who is a certified badass is Jennifer Broom. She owns QK Kennels in Connecticut and is not only a seriously talented trainer, but also a diehard hunter. She and I spent some time last year chasing woodcock and grouse on public land in northern Wisconsin, and she explained her strategy of dog training to me, which is basically sort of like the Conor McGregor, you know, heyday of UFC, take them all, take on everybody, or maybe Nate Diaz or whoever. She wouldn't turn down a dog. She'd take on super well-bred hunting breeds. She'd take on mutts, shelter dogs, and just generally any dog that came her way. She takes the dogs that have already been trained very well, but also might need a little polishing for upper-level work, like triple-blind retrieves or hand signals. She'd take dogs that, I don't know, wouldn't know a pheasant if it pecked them on the nose. She'd take dogs that need basic foundation work at three years of age because they never received an ounce of training until that point. Now, anyone who knows dogs knows what a challenge that is to unravel all of those bad habits and then start from scratch and build in those positive behaviors you want. In fact, if you ask most trainers what the biggest problem they have with any dog is, it's undoing the bad work the owner did or allowed. A trainer who chooses to work with those type of dogs and dogs that are bred for various random tasks and dogs that are just supposed to be well-behaved house dogs is a trainer who is going to have a hell of a lot to work with in the old toolbox. Now, the other side of this in the training world are, you know, what you could kind of call the specialists. They love the British labs, so that's all they work with. Or they love pointers, so it's English pointers or GSPs or whatever. And that's the lane they stay in. And you know what? They get really, really good at breeding and training those specific dogs. Now, if you have a British lab and you want to wring every ounce of prey drive out of it, you might want to go to that specialist because they're probably going to have an answer for you. But if you come to them with a Nova Scotia duck toller, maybe not. Or if your spouse brings home a dog from a back alley litter of mutts and you can't take it back and you need it not to chew on your furniture or bark at the walls or whatever, huh? maybe not. The broader experience solving problems with a huge range of dogs makes some trainers so good it's almost unreal. The people who work with a huge variety of challenging dogs just keep getting better because having to solve every random problem that comes your way is going to force you to think and work through those problems over and over. Hey, and the specialists are great, but they're also the kind of people who, I don't know, in the deer world, hunt only one spot their entire life. They may get very good at that specific property, but they might not get real good at generally hunting deer through a variety of conditions. Do you see where I'm going with this? This podcast leans heavily toward the bow hunting realm for several reasons. First off, it's mine, and I primarily only bow hunt, so that's a pretty big factor. It's also not much of a secret that the folks who are you know, most likely to consume content like this in the deer space also tend to mostly be hardcore bow hunters first. But is being only a bow hunter the best choice if you want to get better at deer hunting? 
I don't think so. I do believe in my heart of hearts that the close range game of bow hunting will make you better than the long distance buffer you get with rifles, shotguns, and muzzleloaders. But that doesn't mean that picking up a weapon that makes a little more noise when it goes off isn't a good thing. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I drove on over to the Cabela's by my house to buy some muzzleloader powder and bullets when Cabela's didn't have anything. Because for some reason, that store has turned into mostly a clothing shop where you're constantly pressured into opening a credit card under the threat of getting waterboarded in the warehouse by a clueless 18-year-old sales associate in a tan shirt. I went elsewhere. I found the supplies, took my muzzleloader out, and got that sucker dialed in. I just have a soft spot in my heart for muzzleloader hunting, and since the timing worked out, I knew I was either going to go to Wisconsin or stay in Minnesota, or maybe both. Now, the states I hunt these days allow for scopes on muzzleloaders, and that changes the game. But before Minnesota legalized scopes, it was an open sight deal only. I still loved it because it was kind of like bow hunting on easy mode. Anything within 100 yards was fair game, and anything within about 75, as long as I had a really good rest, was in serious trouble. I learned this after learning mostly what not to do with a muzzleloader. Because you see, as a lifelong bow hunter, I felt like I would almost be cheating when I picked up a gun. Even a gun that is a relatively short-range weapon compared to many of the firearms we take into the field. So instead of hunting deer like I do with a bow, I started just walking around trying to find one to shoot. After all, that extra horsepower should have allowed me to still hunt my way to a ton of filled tags. And honestly, it did. Well, not really. Some tags, for sure. But it also led me to watch an awful lot of deer run away and reminded me that there are good stalking conditions and there are conditions where you'll never, ever get anywhere near a deer. That's the time when you got to ambush. It taught me that muzzleloader hunting on a huge chunk of ground was a different deal than hunting a tiny parcel. It made me realize that what I thought would be easy due to the obvious advantage over archery tackle was almost always mitigated by something. Now that might have just been a crunchy layer of snow out there or some early winter rain or mostly just the effects of a ton of hunting pressure from bow and gun season. But always, no matter what, it seemed like the whole thing kind of leveled off pretty quickly. And what I didn't see coming when I started that was that I still had to hunt smart. I had to figure out what the conditions were going to do to the deer, what the pressure was going to do to the deer, and how I could intersect with them on the properties I was hunting. At one point, muzzleloader hunting brought me to a few different states on public and private land, and it just gave me an education I didn't know I needed. Rifle hunting did too once I started doing it. Now, you would probably be better off growing a 1980s Miami Vice Mark Kenyon mustache for good luck than you would listening to me give rifle hunting advice, so take that for what it's worth. But rifle hunting taught me a lesson that I needed to learn, and I needed to be reminded of every year, and you've heard me talk about it a ton on here, which is cover is king. The bucks I've killed with a rifle, they've all been in cattail sloughs, or the thickest parts of the biggest woods. They've all been closer than I thought they would be. And they've all showed me that the deer weren't all gone. They weren't all nocturnal. They were just being damn sneaky in places that offered them serious advantages. Going from being a strict, pompous, look down your nose at everyone else kind of bow hunter to a deer hunting generalist who would gladly pick up a gun taught me how to be a better deer hunter. And it could teach you as well. But here's the thing though. 
it's easy to go into default mode sometimes, no matter what your weapon of choice is. If you have that box blind on the edge of the pick cornfield and have gone from a 40-yard weapon to a 400-yard weapon, it's pretty easy to grab your little buddy heater and some Swiss cake rolls and go live the good life. But what does that teach you? It'll probably teach you that by gun season, the big boys aren't much into running across open fields when the masses are out there with serious firepower. What would the third day of gun season teach you if instead of crawling up into a tiny house built to shoot deer from, you slipped into some cover and saddled up for an afternoon sit? Or what would you learn about doing two-man drives on the public river bottom down the road? What could you learn if you muzzleloader hunted during a serious cold snap? When the bed-to-food pattern should be cranking up? What if you don't see them on the food, even though it's zero degrees and they should be carving up in the cornfield? What if you decide to take your muzzleloader to an area of your state you've never hunted? Maybe to a place that has grassy plains, maybe full of cattail sloughs and tiny woodlots, and couldn't look more different from your typical big woods hunt? Or what if you went from a place you couldn't glass because it's just too thick to a place where you could see whole sections of land with the right optics, or vice versa? What would that change about how you hunt? This is the thing about weapon choice, my friends. It puts us in a new mindset and allows us the chance to hunt just a little bit differently. And this is so much harder than it looks. When you turn on the outdoor channel these days, you'll mostly see people hunting easy stuff regardless of weapon choice. That box bind on the food plot in southern Iowa will be just as good for the bow opener as it will be for the final days of the season, no matter what weapon you've got. It'll be good for whatever weapon they pick up all season long in most of the places they choose to hunt and film for you. And those people have learned to get to the deer to do exactly what they want them to do. That's their secret. But you don't have that. And honestly, you probably don't want that, even though it would be nice to kill a 200-inch buck without having to burn a calorie. That's not going to happen, though. But you can get a lot better at deer hunting by switching things up. This is one of the easiest ways I know to prompt yourself out of a hunting rut. We all do this, and it's not good for our success, or more importantly, our skill set. We go to places where we are comfortable sitting. We default to where we think we are most likely to see the deer. We make excuses, especially as the season drags on. We get complacent, and honestly, all this stuff's okay. Hunting isn't supposed to be hard work for everyone. If the ladder stand over the food plot is where you want to sit, go for it. But if you find yourself wishing you could have more encounters with bigger deer, or you find yourself not wanting to do the same old thing because you're pretty sure it will deliver the same old results, then consider shaking things up. Now, it might be too late for that this year, but it's not too late to start thinking about how you do that next year. It's not too late to consider what you might want to buy yourself for Christmas that might just require hearing protection when you use it. Because once you decide that, you know what? Screw it. I've worked my ass off for a long time, and I think I deserve a new muzzleloader. And anyway, we always have some free time during the beginning of December, and why shouldn't I just do it? Listen, I say treat yourself. Because you know what that's going to do? It's going to get you thinking about what you'll have to do to be successful. Your bow-only strategy isn't going to totally cut it this year or next year when you head out with a brand new blaze orange vest on. You're going to have to think about what it's going to take to be successful. And you know what else? It'll open up opportunities you might not see coming. One of the most challenging hunts I've ever been on that was also one of the most fun 
was in 2013 when a buddy and I drove to Nebraska in December and muzzleloader hunted deer on an enormous chunk of public land. The two-year-old I shot that year, after hunting all day the first day we got there, and not seeing a single deer, by the way, was a trophy that I was pretty damn proud of. He brought me across miles of sand hills and so many good-looking spots that simply didn't hold a single deer when I was there. That kind of hunting, while it could be done with a bow, was not something I had ever done with a bow. It took a gun to get me to make that eight-hour drive and do that hunt, and I'm so glad I did. In fact, I'm pretty happy every time I switch weapons and try to hunt whitetails in some different way, you know, whether I'm at home or headed on the road somewhere. I love having to plan differently and think about my approach and my setups. I also love knowing that if we get eight inches of fresh powder and I've got enough land to work with, I might be able to channel my inner upper northeastern hunter and track one. The first doe I ever killed with a muzzleloader gave me that chance, and it's still one of the few whitetails I've ever shot in its bed. It's also the biggest doe I've ever shot. Do you have a chance to do something like this? To take something other than your usual weapon of choice out to try your hand at the same game with different rules? If so, I'd consider it if I were you. The secret to leveling up as a deer hunter isn't gaining access to the best ground out there, because while that will certainly help you fill up the walls of your man cave with sweet mounts, it won't necessarily make you a better hunter. Hell, Easy deer hunting often makes us worse, even though it can be a hell of a lot of fun. What a weapon switch instead could do for you is actually make you a better hunter, which is pretty fun, by the way. It'll open up new styles, like still hunting, or drives, or whatever. It'll allow you to ambush from the ground in spots where your bow would be worthless, or allow you to sit up over a valley that you've never hunted, because to, to bow hunt it, you'd have to get so close to the deer and contend with all the swirling wind but maybe you can play it safe at the top of the ridge and maybe you'll see the deer do something you didn't think they'd do maybe they'll walk past a tree to get into that valley that you could hang a stand in next bow season shaking things up and challenging ourselves sort of the name of the game and you know what else it's pretty damn enjoyable i know some hunters who have no desire to try anything different and good for them but if that's not you or you're looking for a way to force yourself to try new things, this can be a pretty good move. And it probably won't be as easy as you think it'll be, which is exactly how it should be. And if it is, I don't know, a little too easy, then maybe that'll prompt you to get out of the box blind and head to the public land with your buddies to do a few little drives. Or maybe instead of sitting in your favorite stand, you'll still hunt, I don't know, the fresh snow in a river bottom on that public land. Maybe you'll learn doing any of those things while directly influencing your success in the moment, will also benefit you a whole lot throughout the rest of your life as a hunter. So I guess, who doesn't want that? Try something new, my friends. And be sure to tune in next week as I break down late-season hunting for people who don't have good places to late-season hunt. That's all I have for you this week. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast, and I'm your host, Tony Peterson. And you know it's brought to you by First Light. Feel free to visit themediator.com slash wired to read our latest articles or head on over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to see our how-to videos that we drop every week. And again, thank you so much for the support. All of us here at Meat Eater sincerely appreciate it. Hold up. 
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.